On more than a few occasions these past 14 months, I have thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice to just have someone to plainly, clearly, and regularly say, here is what you need to do. And here's how to do it. And here's what you need not to do. Because I have found these past 14 months have been filled with all kinds of of unique and sometimes weighty decisions to make amidst all kinds of uncertainties and unknowns that we're not used to navigating. And I know I'm hardly alone, right? I mean, depending on where you work or volunteer, your family situation, we have had questions like to open or not to open or, or, or somewhere in the middle. And if open, what protocols? And if those protocols, how to enact them? To attend school this way or that way? And if that way, what are the implications? Those health protocols are those health protocols. To travel there or not? To trust that news source on this one or, or that one? To reschedule the wedding or the memorial service? Or do like a both live and live stream, but then who gets to attend and, and who doesn't? And, and to attend the event or not. And rarely has the answer always been easy and obvious, or if the answer's been easy and obvious, then implementing how we go about it hasn't always been easy or obvious. And over time, all of these different unique decisions, they start adding up, they become tiring. And wouldn't it be nice if if someone could just do all the answering for us? Whatever the load is we're carrying, whatever the questions we felt, just take it and take care of it. I, for one, am sympathetic to the elders of Israel. In our passage, you heard Sue read from 1 Samuel 8, when they come to the prophet Samuel and they say, appoint for us then a king to govern us like all the other nations. Give us a leader who can bear the burdens of of these uniquely challenging times, who can deal with, with the problems, again, just like all the other nations. First, a bit of context about this request by those elders. At this time in Israel's history, the people of God are under this form of government where uh, God is their king. And from time to time, when Israel needs a particularly strong earthly leader, God raises up a prophet like Deborah or Samson, or God uh, raises up a, a judge like, uh, or the judge like Deborah or Samson, or a prophet like Samuel we heard about in our passage. And they lead for that needed season. Inherent to this form of government is this covenant with God. They trust Yahweh above and beyond any form of government or system or military. We belong to God, and our God will take care of us. This makes the people of Israel, of course, a peculiar people among the nation. And way back in Genesis, God promises that other nations will eventually pray to be blessed by the nation of Israel because they'll see how good that peculiarity is. Well, in 1 Samuel 8, we're hitting at this point in the story where Samuel, one of those prophets that God raised up at just the right time, he's done a great job, but he's getting older. His two sons are starting to slide into some of that leadership, and they're using the power for their own ends. They're accepting bribes. They're distorting justice. So the elders of the community, they see this this leadership moment of transition coming, and there's cause for alarm. On top of that, this scene is taking place near the beginning of the Iron Age. 
That's an age when militaries began using steel for their weaponry, much stronger than bronze. It's more formidable. And that's rather intimidating when you're, when you're a nation with no reliable standing military surrounded by these nations with kings and the king's armies, and they're starting to use that steel. Bottom line. Israel, in this moment, 1 Samuel chapter 8, faces significant questions about leadership internally and significant threats externally. It is a highly anxious moment. In the 2019 book, Uproar, Calm Leadership in Anxious Time, Times, Peter Stanky writes that in times of acute transition and anxiety, times like we've known these recent months and, and he would argue these, these recent years really, Quote, prepare us to sell our soul to some miraculous cure or larger-than-life figure. We become prone to seek rescuers with puffed-up promises and rich remedies. The more anxious and uncertain the times, the more we look for a hero, a, a, a lifeboat, some way to get out, someone to give the answer, someone with the miracle, someone with the cure, someone with an easy-to-digest bumper sticker that says sort of how we need to think or, or, or back or be. Give us a king, like every other nation. Someone who can very obviously be the quick fix amidst all the unknowns. I was reading an article by a pastor at Second Reformed Church in Pella, Iowa, a church in the Reformed Church of America. I see some smiles. Some of you know Iowa well. And in the article, he laments his denomination's cultural capitulation. Now, we might have many number of ideas of what it looks like when the church capitulates the culture, but this is a moment where he sees his particular domination essentially trying to do things, quote, like everybody else. The issue with his denomination is they very well may split because, no surprise, there are significant social, political, and theological divides in the denomination. And this pastor talks about this report that arrived to the floor of their denomination last summer, 2020, which provided recommendations about what the denomination, the Reformed Church in America, should do amidst significant division and difference. But before he gets to sharing the recommendations, this pastor reminds the reader that his denomination, much actually like the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, is one where the church structures, quote, assume things like jointly held authority, trust, long-term relationships, mutuality, while still respecting boundaries and differences. Our book of order that helps us, teaches us how we go about our governance, puts it this way. The polity, the governance of the Presbyterian Church USA presupposes the fellowship of women, men, and children united in covenant relationship with one another and God through Jesus Christ. The organization rests on the fellowship and is not designed to work without trust and love. The whole of our jointly held governance with people of all kinds of backgrounds, ages, race, ethnicity, the whole of it is premised on this covenant in which we trust God and we trust one another and the way the trust is nurtured is love. So the author reminds us, reader, of this peculiar kind of governance we reformed types have, this peculiar way of sharing life. And then he shares the recommendation that 
his denomination has made in dealing with the fact that, you know what, there are really significant divisions and differences in these congregations. The report suggests, one, uh, churches should have, a, each congregation should have an affinity group that clusters the churches together with like-minded churches. Instead of geographical clusters where you work with and partner with churches in your same area, let's make them affinity groups, like-minded. They'll get along. They suggest, number two, the global arm of their church be made into a separate entity entirely, like its own separate sort of nonprofit, so that there's not all this friction with international partners who see things differently. You know what? They do things their way. We do things our way. And then finally, third recommendation, they suggest this, what's called a grace-filled separation, where each congregation can have its own property and its own money, and none of that is shared with the denomination as a whole or other congregations that you don't know and you don't trust and you don't like and they don't think the same. So yours is yours. Ours is ours. The pastor offers this assessment of these recommendations. I'm not suggesting there are better options. I'm simply observing that if we want to see what cultural capitulation looks like, here it is. The recommendations of the report accurately express what makes sense, what is accepted, what it really looks like to be the church today. In a society, he writes, where all we hear is how polarized and deeply divided we are, is there anything more indicative of our cultural capitulation than for a church to be polarized and divided? When he sees the church saying, just, just let us be with our own kind of people, what he hears is an echo of that ancient cry, just let us have a king like everybody else. Let us organize our way of being like everybody else already does in so many facets of society. It's just easier. It's natural. It avoids a whole lot of stuff. It just... So God relents. You heard, God lets them organize themselves into a monarchy. They will have a king, but not before they are given fair warning by way of the prophet Samuel. In fact, it's such a, such a strong warning that scholars believe that God is hoping this warning will shake the people away from their request. Samuel tells the people, okay, you can have a king. And perhaps that'll give you a little bit of better sense of security that you're looking for. But, but just know, your king's going to take everything. Your sons, your daughters, your land will be for the king. Your taxes, your food, for the king. The very thing you see as your easy out, your, your hero, your escape, your way to fix the things right now, that will be the thing that enslaves you. And I wonder if we wouldn't imagine a similar kind of warning today. Okay, okay. Have your affinity group churches gather with the people who, who, who look like you and vote like you and watch the same news sources as you. But the more distance you have from one another, the less you know one another. The less you know the other side, the more you will judge the other side. The more you judge the other side, the more you will hate the other side. The more you hate the other side, the more you will be willing to treat them as less than human. The more you're willing to treat them as less human, the more likely you are to injure them. Word 
or more. And of course, the more all that grows, the more those, those fires of, 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 of anger and hate and judgment grow towards them, those will actually be the fires that consume you. The obvious easy fix will actually turn out to be the thing that consumes. God's warning in our passage fails to awaken the people to just what they're asking for. In fact, when Samuel gets a response from, uh, from the warning, if, if you listened uh, to Sue's reading it's, it, the second time, it's not just the elders now asking for a king. It's the elders and all the people, as in the leadership and everybody's one voice on this. No, we want a king over us, just like all the other nations, that we might be secure. And you heard Saul is anointed king shortly thereafter. Yes, the people did eventually discover themselves enslaved to the demands of the future kings, their, their future children, grandchildren. The prophetic warnings prove true if you keep with the story. But here is the really strange and, and even peculiar thing about this story if you keep reading. Even though the people of God have traded in what makes them peculiar, God actually says, this is just denying me, rejecting me. God doesn't give up. If you keep reading the story, God sticks with the people of Israel. God ends up working with and even through King Saul, King David, future kings. Which is to say, the people choose wrongly. They, they reject God, and still God is faithful to work right through the wrong thing. I imagine we could be tempted at this point uh, to think a little bit like some of the, the folks that the Apostle Paul wrote to in the book of Romans. He writes about them in chapter 6. Uh, uh, rhetorically, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound all the more? I, shall we just keep having kings like we want and dividing into our preferred enclaves like we want and really doing whatever we want because God's faithful and forgiving and it's going to work with us. I mean, let's, let's do our thing that grace may abound. And some of you know Paul, the very next verse, quite bluntly. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? God's faithfulness amidst our impoverished decisions is hardly a justification for continuing in those kind of decisions. We're, we're still called to be a peculiar people. A light, and not just a call, it's really, it's really a gift. It's one of the most vitalizing aspects of our faith. And in our day and age, I'm convinced one of the chief ways we give witness to this peculiarity is by gathering and serving and worshiping alongside people we'd never find ourselves in the same room with, except for Jesus. It's by gathering and growing in trust and love with people across the kind of boundaries that usually divide the rest of society. This is our prophetic peculiarity for such a time as this. And yet I cannot deny the logical end of our passage at 1 Samuel 8 today. Even when we cannot help ourselves and we cry out, just let us organize ourselves like everybody else. Those people are too much, too difficult, too wrong. Even as there is suffering that will come out of such separation, still God will meet us where we are and still God will work with that. 
because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ours is a God who humbles God's self time and again to meet us where we are in our wrongheadedness and love. May we know the gift of God's steadfast nearness wherever we are this day, walking with us. And in these anxious times, and in these times where there are so many questions, in these times where we are all reaching for ready-made quick fixes and, and, and the safety of, of like-mindedness and, and making wrong-headed decisions, may we, the church of Jesus Christ, go forth and show forth God's peculiar love by being a people who go likewise and dwell among them and love. Amen.